0: Hello, my name is Dr. Neil Buttery, and welcome to the second season of the British Food History Podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about how it's going to work. The last season was, of course, just one single topic, and it was about Lent. I made two fatal mistakes. The first thing is it was Lent, and therefore seasonal, so people only listened to it during Lent. Two, it was about Lent, and everyone thought it was religious, which it was not, but never mind. But this time, I'm going to do individual episodes about different subjects. And then at the end of a season, do a large topic that might take up two or three episodes. And this season's special topic is, drumroll, eels. What, you might be thinking, a special topic on eels. That's nuts. Well, no, believe me, there's a lot going on in the very weird world. And it is a very weird world, that of the slimy eel. And if you don't know who I am, as I said before, I'm Dr. Neil Buttery. I'm a food historian. I'm a chef. I'm an author. And I'm a blogger and a podcaster. For a couple of years, I had a little restaurant. I was also a scientist specializing in evolutionary biology. And my research was all about the evolution of social behavior. Before that, I was a high school teacher. So I've done quite a few things in the past. Hopefully, we'll bring them all together in the podcast somehow. Now, the plan is, is to do six episodes. It's taken me quite a long time to make an episode. So I'm going to do six episodes and then take some time off and put together a season three. Hopefully that won't take almost uh, 18 months. And then hopefully a season four, but definitely a Christmas special. I'm just going to mention the blogs in case you haven't seen them and you don't know what they are. There's loads of recipes and posts about almost every aspect of British cooking. Although there are gaps, like I said, about the big and complicated topics. I have a blog called British Food A History, and that's relatively general, except it's about British food and history. But the second one, Neil Cooks Grigson, is a blog which kind of got me started in the whole thing, was cooking every recipe in Jane Grigson's wonderful tome, English food. I've almost got to the end of it. I've been mentioning these quite a lot, as well as my past jobs and acquaintances and stories. Hopefully we'll get to know each other as the episodes go on. Now, I'm not going to go on about this, except I will be going on about it, but I'll be doing it blushingly. If you like what you've heard, or maybe you like what you've read on the blog later, please support the blog and podcast. Go to britishfoodhistory.com and click on the support the blog and podcast tab. And if you can, support the podcast and blogs by treating me to a virtual coffee, a virtual pint, or virtually anything else. Virtual pizza, virtual car would be nice. Maybe a trip on Virtual Virgin Galactic. But if you can't, that's okay. But please do tell your friends about it. Subscribe, like, rate, download. I would be ever so grateful. Alternatively, you could become a subscriber. For just three British pounds sterling per month, you get a load of extra stuff, including special features from the podcast. Be they full-length interviews, cut sections and skits, or extra recipes. I tried to keep the episodes between 30 and 40 minutes, at least that's what I've tried to do in the past. Some have ended up being too long, in my opinion, because I didn't want to kill any darlings, because I was really happy with all the stuff I'd recorded. Well, now, these choice morsels that mm, maybe don't fit, but are still good, they don't die anymore, but they live on as premium content on my easter egg tab on the website. Also, I'm going to do some extra blog posts just for subscribers and some masterclass, I'm using inverted commas with my fingers, you can't see it, but I am, masterclass videos showing some of the basics like pastry making, bread making, custards, stuff like that, stuff that I think you have to be shown. If there's anything you think should be covered in those, actually I'd be quite interested to hear. One more piece of housekeeping before we get on with the episode, and that is... Please get involved. If you've got any questions about anything you hear in the episode or any other episode in this or any other season, I'll just have a general food history question or indeed a general cooking question. Please contact me. I'm hoping to do a post-bag extra episode once the season is all tied up. That might be at the end of this one or maybe the start of the next one. I'm not quite sure yet. It's just going to depend on how many people write in and when they write in. So we'll see. You can contact me via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or find me on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram at doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Right, we better get on with the actual episode. We? Why gingerbread? Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of it. It might not be quite as revered as it has been in the past, but I love it... And make it regularly, especially the best of all the gingerbreads, Yorkshire Parkin, more on that later. We've all done a lot of baking over the last 18 months during the coronavirus epidemic, but there's one person who's been baking rather more than most. They baked a huge amount of gingerbread, so much so, in fact, that they wrote a cookbook on the subject. Now that's put us all to shame, hasn't it? Makes that loaf of banana bread a little bit less of an achievement, doesn't it? Earlier this year, June 2021, I chatted with food historian, writer and chef Sam Bilton, author of the cookbook First Catch Your Gingerbread, which was published by Prospect Books in 2020. Aside from writing books about gingerbread, Sam also hosts excellent supper clubs with a historical theme, something I've done in the past, so we've got a bit in common, and she writes for various journals and magazines, and has an excellent blog and website, so please check it out, sambilton.com. Are some excellent posts on there, plus information of various events. All the information will of course be in the show notes. During our chat, we talked about, amongst other things, the origins of gingerbread, that some gingerbreads don't even contain any ginger, gingerbreads close ties with Victorian fairgrounds, and the difficulties surrounding cooking historical foods. Sam, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. Before we jump in to talk about the book, more broadly speaking, why a book on gingerbread in the first place? Is it something you've loved forever, or is it just something you recognise as needing a bit of attention?
1: I've always loved gingerbread, so that is um, kind of that's just me. Uh, I love spices anyway, so that was one of the reason, one of the drivers. But I guess um, being a food historian, as you know, you you come up, you look at a lot of old cookery books, and in doing that. You see recipes all the time for gingerbread or gingerbread nuts. And it sort of struck me as strange that no one had actually looked at it in detail because it's there. I know they're not particularly trendy bakes in terms of lots of Mm other things you can do now with cakes and whatnot. But uh, it struck me as strange that no one had ever explored why it's, you know, it's one of the oldest sweet confections we have in this country. Uh, and indeed other countries across Europe, and why we, Perth, in Britain particularly, hadn't see, sort of studied it in any depth. So that's what was the driver, really.
0: Yes, indeed, because, of course, the, this podcast is about uh, the history of British food, but gingerbread is one of those things you can't really look at in isolation, as we Brits have a tendency to do sometimes, <laughs> unfortunately.
1: Um, no, I mean, it's it was, I try, I mean, it, it, the range of books it's in is the English kitchen so I tried to stick to British gingerbreads but you can't as you say you can't look at it in isolation because I mean our food culture generally is influenced by so many other nationalities so um, I did have little forays into European gingerbreads and a little bit into the US as well but it's it's predominantly British gingerbreads that I've looked at
0: and unfortunately we've kind of lost a little bit our uh, big love of gingerbread I mean there's a few Anomalies like you and I who really like it, but uh, it's certainly not as popular or as sort of coveted and what have you than other countries. I'm thinking of places like like Poland and, and France, really, maybe Germany that really love it.
1: Obviously, gingerbread is it's still present in our you know, daily lives. If you go into any coffee shop, you undoubtedly find a gingerbread man, um, sort of a generic shape. But in terms of its significance in culture and, you know, we would, I don't think many people would see it as a treat that it was or a partic- anything particularly special these days, um, which is a shame, I think, because, I, you know, there's some absolutely lovely gingerbread recipes out there, regional ones, are screaming to be rediscovered and made on a wider scale, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and there's a surprising diversity flicking through your book. There's a lot of uh, types of gingerbread that I'd just not heard of at all. Um, in fact before we go on I suppose we should answer the simple question please what is gingerbread because it's not so straightforward is it
1: oh gosh no it's not uh and that did cause me uh, a lot of that uh, well not problems but it's it's uh yeah it was it's a can of worms and some I mean it, it was a vat of worms once we got, <laughs> I delved into it <laughs> because I mean the one of the earliest recipes for gingerbread from the 15th century actually although it's called gingerbread doesn't contain ginger at all So. It, not a given there's been lots of debate but from food historians some think it was a transcription error in the book and that it actually should have been in there and whoever transcribed the recipe originally forgot to put it in and therefore subsequently it has it's stayed out of the recipe mm-hmm. i'm not quite convinced by that argument myself because there are there is other evidence to suggest in this country and in europe that not all gingerbreads contain ginger um so Uh, it is a bit misleading so uh, gingerbread broadly speaking is a spiced confection sweetened confection I think is probably as close as definition as I would be able to hang my hat on
0: indeed okay I'll take that Um, but going right back to the origin of gingerbread we're talking what we're talking about is it something that would be familiar to to us today
1: well I mean the, the let's say that we've got the 15th century, the medieval recipe. So, um, and that is, you know, you can see although there's no ginger in it, you can see where they were coming from in terms of, um, Gingerbread, so how it evolved? Yes, again, it's clouded in mystery. I mean, there are some theories that it's based on a, a bread called pan Mel- melitos This has been suggested by some historians that it came from China and it was uh, something eaten by Genghis Khan's troops. Oh, okay. Uh, there is also a theory that it's Roman. Um, I personally I, I didn't. Find any evidence to say that it was roman per se although the romans did have spiced certainly spiced sort of honey cakes or they had honey cakes that may have been spiced i should say and they definitely did have make breads obviously but uh yeah it's again it's one of those things that sort of it seems to have evolved over time so it's it's got i mean the original european versions obviously had uh, or the british ones anyway were breadcrumb based So they had um, breadcrumbs and honey and spices all mixed together and then sort of dried rather than baked. Yeah, quite an an unusual texture is is probably how I would describe it for modern tastes. Probably lovely if you were living in medieval times, but uh, yeah, quite uh, an unusual texture and taste.
0: Yeah, I had a go at making it once. Um, I don't think I did a very successful job. Um, It ended up being too too runny. I put too much... uh honey in it so I had to make it into a, a treacle tart instead because it couldn't I couldn't it yeah you couldn't mold it or anything and I was very happy to see that um you kind of did a similar interpretation in the book too I
1: that's because I did I tried I think it was Hugh Platt's recipe um which is from uh the early 17th century uh and, oh my goodness that was disgusting I'm sorry I don't oh, really? I my taste at all it was um the texture's odd because it's you kind of have the bread crumbs, you toast them and then you grind them up again but it's, oh. it's not the same as making bread you know a gingerbread with flour but it had wine and licorice in it as well as ginger and a host of other spices it just I mean, I'm not a licorice fan I have to say at this point so it's possibly right. my taste buds uh, I just, I, I just, I, I tasted it and I went, yeah, that one's not going in.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a building material rather than a food.
1: It was, yeah, it was, yeah, very odd. you do, because you don't, as you know, you don't get quantities in these old recipes. They just say some honey or sometimes you get quantities, but usually they're so vast and it's hard to know exactly what they were trying to achieve. So I, yeah, I, I turned mine into a, a, like a honey tart, which is like a treacle tart. Um, and use a medieval spice blend for that yeah I couldn't in conscious put it in there's 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 um you know I at the end of the day I wanted people to make the recipes and to enjoy <laughs> we did have a fair few close in ear misses with broken teeth and things with um some of the gingerbreads I made in the course of the research but uh
0: did you find that there was so many gingerbreads they just had to leave them out for space were you swamped with gingerbreads
1: yeah, I mean the problem is, and I do say at the beginning of the book, it's it's nothing personal, but I I could not include every single regional gingerbread because they are they are d- different, but the differences are very subtle. Mm. Um, so I tried to pick a, a, quite a range of gingerbreads around the country, and uh, more some of the more common ones like Parkin, for example. But even Parkin, as you probably know, isn't it's it's not as cut and dried as being. A particular type of um uh, cake or bake it's that you know i found varieties of that um, in my research again some of which were nicer than others but uh, yeah there were a lot that i didn't i couldn't include i just didn't have the space
0: going back to early recipes medieval recipes i was quite interested as well in at the back of the book is your medieval spice mix because it's not just ginger going into a gingerbread usually anyway
1: no so gingerbread it's usually a mixture of spices um pepper often features quite heavily because it, i guess it's got a similar favorite profile in terms of the heat that it brings mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be quite an important part of for me anyway when you have a classic gingerbread it's got to have that spicy kick the medieval spice blend was i think i know i found one in the Menagerie of um paris but I'm not sure that was the one I used because I was looking for a British one, but it is basically this, the one that the recipe in here has got grains of paradise in, which we don't use much now in food, but I believe some um, traditional brewers still use it. And uh, they had, you know, when you read some medieval recipes, they'll often say like um, powder deuce or powder fort, which are these yes. these spice uh, spice blends. Um, as I did find one in the Menagerie of Paris. It was basically a book that was written by a bloke for his, very young wife, telling her how to be a good housewife, um, and oh, that's it, nice of him. Yeah, I mean, she's I guess <laughs> probably about fifteen. For poor, for poor I don't know how old he was, but he, yeah, he wrote her an instruction manual. Um, uh, I've never read it cover to cover, but I believe yeah, some of it, it's, it's quite a hoot by in, by modern standards. But yeah, there was a re- certainly a recipe in there that I came across that actually gave um, measurements. So that spice blend is predominantly ginger. And then it's got grains of paradise, cloves, and I think cinnamon in it. And it does, again, it makes for quite a peppery, spicy um, blend. And it's not, you know, it's, it's one that I sort of say, if you want something a bit different from commercial mixed spice, it's a nice one to make mix up and have in your cupboard to use in gingerbreads or in any other dish, really, that you would use mixed spice in. But, you know, there's some great spice companies out there now where you can get all these uh, sort of rarer spices. So it, they're not quite as impossible to get hold of perhaps some people might
0: think no they're relatively easy i mean sort of seven or eight years ago it was very difficult but something's changed over the last few years for sure so all of these gingerbreads we've been talking about so far are all ones that have been for rich folk essentially because spices are expensive honey's expensive well everyone ate honey but you know it was seasonal and went for quite a lot of money but then something changed for gingerbreads and suddenly Rather than being eaten by everyone in the top tier, it suddenly just trickled through, well, poured through, more like, it seems anyway, um, because of sugar becoming cheap, or derivatives of sugar becoming cheap first. What happened? How did that change the nature of gingerbread?
1: Well, at some point, someone... Sort of cottoned onto the idea that uh, you would get this byproduct from sugar production called well, molasses, we call it treacle, was a byproduct of processing sugar. And I guess someone caught on pretty early that, you know, we could put this to use. So two uses for it making rum mm-hmm. or uh, as a, an alternative sweetener. Now you start to see sort of the back end of the 17th century recipes for gingerbreads that contain treacle rather than honey and of course because it was being produced on quite a massive scale this by this point into the 18th century it helped yeah I mean the price of sugar came down because it was being refined over here rather than in the West Indies and places like that uh, and then of course what as the price came down it became more accessible and you could make gingerbreads that were you know bakers could make gingerbreads Usually still for special occasions, though. I don't think it sort of became a... It's not like today where we go to the supermarket and we pick up a packet of ginger nuts and dunk them in our tea. I think for a long time it was still associated with sort of special events and festivities and things.
0: Ginger nuts feature quite highly in your book. To be honest, it's something I'd never thought of in the past. You just kind of, like you see, you you pick up some ginger nuts at the supermarket. I'd never thought about its providence at all. And uh, they're extremely popular weren't they particularly i guess victorian era's where it reaches its peak
1: yeah they were really one of those things that you could buy um like you know we would go to i don't know fair now and you'd buy doughnuts by the dozen or whatever or bag of chips or something yeah you'd buy gingerbread because they're much smaller than we think of a gingerbread nut now there was sort of almost like a like an amaretti biscuit
0: yes yes that's it yes that is what they're like
1: and they're sort of, you know uh quite hard uh this is where we come back to some recipes i tried for ridiculous <laughs> because no, there's no cooking times so you were kind of guessing how long they should be in the oven for and something turned out very hard indeed but yeah you could buy them by the bag and then they had things like gingerbread lotteries where you paid your penny and you picked a number and if it popped out of the if your number came out of the hat or whatever, or they had these trays that these, you would get a 100 for your penny rather than seven. But everyone was a winner because everyone would get gingerbread nuts. It just depended. If your number was pulled out of the hat, so to speak, you would um, get more. But then conversely, you do then find out that sometimes some of these vendors were actually selling much, I guess, maybe the ones that weren't quite so perfect as their, that's what you would get winning in <laughs> your find those sort of substandard ginger nuts perhaps rather than the perfect ones
0: i guess around this time is where everything gets very regional everywhere can afford molasses or golden syrup so you get the well huge variety it's it's impossible to go into all of the different regions um for me being from yorkshire it's parking the one that leaps out and it's very northern in that it's also full of oats you know further north you get the more oats and less wheat is grown so i guess it reflects the region is there anything that leap out for you
1: in terms of regional ginger ginger gingerbreads well there's two aspects we talk about the parking first when i i am i mean before lockdown that one place i did get to go to was york we that wasn't actually tied in directly to my research but while we were there on a family trip while i was there i went to um, a bookshop and i found this book it's it's um based on manuscript cookbooks from york and there are several versions of parking in there and i always i know park it the recipe i think i've put in the book is mrs millington's parking which was in florence
0: white's good things in england i know florence of her should i say
1: indeed but that's what i call a classic parking but in here there's there's i mean there's parkings that are more more like um almost like a flapjack like a really thin flapjack um, in fact, it's quite interesting to talk about making recipes and being too runny. The first time I made it, it says you know you were supposed to. Make, I thought it was going to end up with biscuits, but it ended up all molding together because it just spread. Because oh, I guess okay. there was quite a lot of people in relation to the oats but that's you know is interesting because i think that is probably closer to the parking that uh, william shakespeare wrong william wordsworth uh, was eating that you hear of dorothy wordsworth commenting in her diaries that he was he was after some gingerbread gingerbread
0: ah okay cuz cuz that, that's the grassmere gingerbread isn't it i suppose
1: it is but that recipe i think all i can say is that oh, that recipe to my best of my knowledge dates back to the late 19th century now whether i think the lady who uh, attributed to Sarah Nelson, I believe, um, it was a family recipe, and I don't know because it's panicked under lock and key. Uh, it was one of those places I was going to visit, but never got to visit because um, of lockdown. So yeah, it, it, yeah, I wonder, I wonder whether that was more like the gingerbread that is described, because when she goes, to, when Dorothy Wordsworth talks about going to the, the gingerbread maker or the baker that makes the gingerbread, she asks if he has any thick gingerbread, which would be more like the grass-made gingerbread we know today, but he only has thin, and this was Ah. thin. (laughs) It was very thin. I mean, not unpleasant, quite chewy, but um, somewhere across between a toffee and a flapjack. But uh, it was, yeah, it was interesting.
0: Yeah, and it's so um, interesting that the history of uh, the British Empire kind of links into gingerbread. It's why things are expensive at first and then suddenly drop. One thing that I found quite interesting is that uh, gingerbread travelled through the British Empire. I spotted a recipe in there from the British Raj that used fresh ginger, which obviously wouldn't... I don't think, would anybody have got fresh ginger in in Britain? I imagine it would have been dried, wouldn't it? So it's quite an oddity, or uh, an exciting oddity, to get some fresh ginger and some gingerbread.
1: It's interesting. So I, yeah, I've always assumed the, the same. But I know, I think Eliza Acton has a recipe, not for gingerbread, but for curry. And she does recommend green ginger. So I guess you could get it, maybe, if you were near. Oh, right. Maybe. Unless I've misinterpreted what she's, she's meaning in the, her recipe. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, problem, the thing with Raj is, of course, people were sent out to India to work. And they wanted to maintain the lifestyle they'd had in in England, so they would be asking their cooks to make, you know, think, you know, some of these these supposed Indian cookbooks have got, you know, recipes for suet puddings. So I can't anything worse than eating. Yeah, suet.
0: Having a big big roast in forty degree heat on a Sunday. <laughs> um, but the Craziness. one
1: I um, did find was the uh, Indian cookbook by a thirty five years resident, and that has actually aside from ginger it has got some gingerbread recipes in there which are fairly traditional british gingerbread recipes and i i sort of amalgamated a few but they, you'll find some that will you know they'll, they'll recommend putting pistachios in for example or or you know say fresh ginger
0: you mentioned before that uh gingerbreads suddenly dropped in popularity have you got any idea about why that might have
1: happened well i think my, i mean my personal view is that there was by the end of the nineteenth century, there were so many more fakes and you know things that you could buy in the shops. You know, with you know chocolate, the price of chocolate had come down, so you could buy ch- chocolate confections as well. Um, I just think it is maybe it was a trend thing. I mean, they were obviously heavily associated with fairs originally, but then of course even at fairs, by the end of the nineteenth century, you have things like candy floss coming in and other sweet treats. I just think it was one of those things maybe it became so normalized.
0: Yeah and I think people have just forgotten what um, gingerbread actually tastes like. There's gingerbread that's made in a factory which is fine I eat it but it's a completely different creature to something that you'd bake at home and I think and people don't really make biscuits I suppose as a as a category of food Um, so I think people have forgotten what really good gingerbreads like and how easy it is to make
1: well that's the other thing it is really easy to make you usually melt your treacle or um golden syrup with your butter and mix it with your dry ingredients roll it out stamp out your figures if you're making gingerbread men or there's the other type of gingerbread of course cakes um you know that uh, uh again it, pretty similar either made with melting or the creaming method where you cream the butter and the sugar first and then you add your treacle and eggs and all the rest of it so yeah i just think it's one of those it's it's something that obviously people like they're they're still there they're just not i guess I say people don't make such a big deal out of them as they used to
0: it's a shame really because again making the cakey ones there's so much syrup in there quite a lot quite a lot of room for error you know if you make a a sponge cake and you leave it in for just five minutes too long, it could be really dry, but something yeah. full of syrup, you're fine. You don't have to worry about it. If you're worried and think, oh, shall I give it an extra five minutes? You can, and you can get away with it. We can't uh, not talk about gingerbread men. Seeing as the title of your book is First Catch Your Gingerbread, you must have made a lot of gingerbread men because there's a lot of photography. Yeah,
1: we made. I made a lot of gingerbread men.
0: But I wanted to ask, actually, because for me, I assume if you say gingerbread to people, they think gingerbread men and gingerbread houses, probably. Are gingerbread men very much a, a British thing? I always think of them to be very British.
1: No, I mean, certainly in the Netherlands, they have um, a long history of making gingerbread figures as well. Um, so, I mean, in a lot of, when you find moulds at um, antiques fairs, quite often they'll be Dutch. Um, so I assume that it's probably the case in many um countries across europe poland as well i would think yeah so it's not exclusive to britain but we do have you know we we had this whole thing where we you know quite often we say when you went to fairs you would find uh the person of the moment represented what supposedly represented in gingerbread although molds did get um, reused repurposed so for example you would have a king you know you might be king george ii i mean luckily we had lots of georges but in succession (laughs) but uh yeah he although king george ii may have been on a horse you might have found that actually he was previously william <laughs> so sure. it was you know it was one of those things that you know they would the repurpose molds and uh sometimes obviously they're they're clearly linked you know might have a name on um i've seen molds of ships for example and you can clearly see the name of the ship so i guess unless they were going to go to the effort of Removing that you couldn't really repurpose those ones per se, but yeah, gingerbread figures were a big deal, and they were covered in gold, um, like gold leaf mm-hmm. form of gold leaf. There was a cheaper version that could be uh, made, and uh, that wasn't actually gold. That's where you get the whole term of licking the guilt of the gingerbread, where they the figures were sort of covered in this gold leaf, um, uh, which again comes back to them being a really special thing, it was a big deal, it wasn't you know, it wasn't just some sort of generic shapes that you like you pick up today in a coffee shop with you know raisins for eyes and stuff it was you know they were identifiable as you know people that were particularly renowned at that period of time
0: sure I mean I love making any kind of old recipe but anything to do with advanced decorating oh I don't have the patience for it
1: I bought a gingerbread um, mould at an antiques fair and I, I, I will have confess I've been terrified I mean I have spoken to several food historians who use theirs but I've been terrified to use mine because I'm like that's if it gets stuck I, mean, <laughs> I can't get the sticky stuff out yeah I'm not I'm you with complex decoration um, I, I found doing the gingerbread house for the book incredibly stressful oh I was
0: going to ask about that <laughs> you beat me to it
1: it was so stressful when I had to make it um, I think most people think of gingerbread houses you make them from nice thin biscuit but that is I tried that and that's that is even more stressful um so I've got quite a thick gingerbread uh that I use for my structure but yes it was having to make the royal icing and then decorate the panels and then stick them together and it 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 took days so you know I've been asked um since the book came out if I would do gingerbread workshops
0: house workshops and I'm like
1: no (laughs) no please no make me do it again
0: i wonder how many people actually make one
1: well you can buy kits now so you don't need to make the gingerbread yourself you buy kits that uh i did it with the kids when they were small
0: okay but that's only slightly reducing the chances of an aneurysm though
1: well yeah quite yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> um yeah it's it's a it's an, an odd phenomenon in many ways
0: people sometimes ask me if they'll yeah, to make cakes for birthdays and things i just I say like No. Well, make a cake, but that's all you're getting.
1: (laughs) I think uh, with food, I mean, it's nice to make food look nice, but obviously I think it's how it tastes is the important thing. Um, And I know when you're making historical recipes, uh, uh, again, I, I say in the book a lot, these are my modern interpretations because quite often historical recipes aren't necessarily as, you know, that they can be a bit of a stretch too far. I think Annie Gray said to me once, uh, 100% authentic isn't always 100% edible. Um, And she's absolutely right.
0: Do you have any other projects coming up?
1: Yes. So I'm writing my second book at the moment uh, on the history of British saffron. So uh, prospect again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm still in spice mode. But uh, yes, looking at saffron this time.
0: All right. It'd be great to have a chat with you about saffron in the future. You're doing a lot of hanging around, uh, Saffron Walden, are you loitering?
1: Because although I live in, I have lived in Sussex most of my life. My family are actually from Essex. My parents live um, very close to Saffron Walden. In fact, they both went to school there when they were young. So yes, I'll be going, uh, spending lots of time in Saffron Walden. Hopefully, going down to Cornwall um, as well. Yeah. So it's yeah. I'm hoping that this time, crossed that COVID won't get in the way.
0: A huge thank you to Sam for sparing the time to talk to me about gingerbread. Again, her website is sambilton.com, and you can find her on Twitter at sjfbilton and Instagram at mrs bilton. They're really good accounts with some really fantastic photography too. Subscribers to my website can hear the full interview I did with Sam. Additional things discussed were gingerbread and folklore and fairy tales, recipe fatigue when writing cookbooks, and the problem of balancing modern cookery equipment and ingredients with historical authenticity. We also went off topic a few times, but it's all interesting nuggets, I promise you. I just want to try and keep the regular episodes to 35 to 40 minutes. Now, we need to look at Parkin'. It was mentioned a few times in our chat, and I mentioned it in the introduction, but you might be scratching your head as to what Parkin' actually is, so just let me tell you a little bit about it. Parkin' is a strongly spiced, sticky gingerbread cake, flavoured with treacle, golden syrup and dark brown sugar and it's traditionally eaten on or around Guy Fawkes Night that's the 5th of November, also known as Bonfire Night in Britain and for me it really makes that day complete it really feels as though Parkin has just always been and is as old as time but the earliest mention of it I can find from a primary source is from 1842 the recipe probably goes a little bit further than that though maybe 25 years it was most likely created sometime during the Industrial Revolution by working class folk because oats and treacle were important staples of the diet at those times. The word Parkin was a popular surname in Yorkshire and it means Peter. And there are other parkings too, such as Lancashire Parkin, but it doesn't contain oats and is not, in my unbiased opinion of course, as good because of it. Okay, let's talk about ingredients a minute. There's a recipe for this on the blog. But I want to talk about ingredients a moment. Any non-Brits may not be aware of two of them. Black treacle and golden syrup. Now, black treacle is an easy one because it's just another name for molasses. However, in North America, many recipes that ask for golden syrup suggest using corn syrup as an alternative. Please, please, please do not do that. They are incomparable. You cannot switch them. Find a shop with a British Isle in it, or go online and get the real thing. It is worth it, Accept no substitutes. The history of Lyle's golden syrup is also an interesting one, and there's a post all about that on the blog too. Also, the medium-cut oats can be tricky to find sometimes. These are whole-grain oats that have been ground up. They are chewy and they are nutty, but tricky to buy in supermarkets. For some reason, even though they crop up quite a lot in recipes, Health food shops and 0 waste shops always seem to stock them, though, and they're very easy to buy online. If you really can't get hold of them, you can use porridge oats. Porridge oats have had their little whole-grain overcoats removed, and they've been steamed and flattened between rollers, which is why they're called rolled oats. It wouldn't quite be as good, but it would still be delicious. Go straight to the blog if you want to find the recipe. Have a look in the show notes. The links to the recipe are in there. Or just go on the blog, britishfoodhistory.com, and type it into the search bar, you'll get there straight away. It's an easy one, a bit like what Sam and I were talking about before, because uh, you don't bother with creaming butter and sugar and that kind of stuff. You just melt the butter and all the sweet ingredients together, pour that into the dry ingredients, mix up with a spoon or balloon whisk, something like that. You don't need an electric mixer. Beat in the milk and eggs. It's the perfect beginner's cake. One last thing about parking, almost as important as getting the ingredients right, is the ageing of it. No matter how tempting it might be, do not eat the parking on the day you have made it. It needs to be kept in an airtight box or tin for at least four days. The cake needs a little bit of time for the flavours to develop and for it to attain that kind of unique crumbly stickiness that no other cake has. I heartily recommend it. Well, that wraps up episode one. It's time to go already. Thanks again to Sam for sparing the time to have a chat with me about gingerbread. Don't forget to check out the blog where the full-length interview with Sam now resides. Also, don't forget, if you've got any questions or queries about today's episode, or, like I've said before, any episode, or you have any question about the history of British food, please email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com. Find me on Twitter, at Neil Buttery, or Instagram, doctor, that's dr underscore Neil underscore Buttery. I shall be back next week, dropping another episode next Sunday. Sunday seems like a good time for new episodes, right? Just before the new week begins? Anyway, right or wrong, I'll be looking at England's first cookbook, Form of Curry, written in the late 14th century. It appeared last season, rather briefly, but we're getting a whole episode devoted to it. I shall be talking to Christopher Monk, who's a medieval scholar, and he's trying to cook as many recipes as possible, and he's going to try and update them to modern equipment and palettes. And yeah, it's really interesting chat. You're really going to love it. So, till then, don't forget to message me if you've got any questions. See you later.